If you have a copy of God's Word, let's look together this morning in the book of Leviticus. So if you actually have a copy there, I would encourage you to uh, keep your Bible open because I'm going to refer to different things uh, in the chapter that I'm not going to read before you now because the whole chapter is talking about one big thing. Um, before I read, just very quickly, I want to remind you that for the last couple of weeks, we have been through, we have looked at the, the, the plagues, the, the Passover, and the commandments, and we've learned together that the story of God's people in the Old Testament is the same as it is for us in the new. And this week, I want you to remember that all of this, all everything we're looking at in the scripture is all about God's story. The word of God is God's story, and it has four parts: creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. This is God's story, the story of reality. Now listen to this as we read Leviticus 16. I'm going to read 11 through 24 and then verses 32 through 34. This is God's word. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take the censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then... He shall kill the goat of sin of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. And as he has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins." And he shall put them in the, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. 
He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Sounds pretty bloody, doesn't it? Well, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Each and every week, Lord, you allow us to come together and to sit under your word and learn what it says and, and by your spirit's power understand what it says and by your spirit's power understand what it means and by your spirit's power it changes. It changes us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to Christ afresh. Help us to understand at least something of this book of Leviticus that we don't read very much and perhaps have never thought about very much, but help us to realize in brand new ways that this book is all about your story, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are intent on focusing our minds, our hearts, and our lives on you, to be centered on you. Let us hear that good news today. We pray this for your glory, for our good. Amen. We live in a world that loves to minimize responsibility, don't we? We live in a world that wants to minimize the effects of things that we do. We live in a world in which it tries to minimize the cost of things. Responsibility, effects, consequences, costs. We live in a world in which so much energy is put forth to shift blame, to shift costs, to shift effects, to shift consequences to other people, don't we? We live in a world in which there is so much energy put forward in order to try and alleviate costs and responsibility and consequences. And the truth is this, everything costs something. And I'm not just talking financially. Everything costs something. Either you're paying for it or someone else is. And I'm not just talking financially. Everything costs something. When we go through the book of Leviticus, if you were to spend time reading this book, here's what you would find out that God is absolutely committed to dwelling with his people. He is absolutely committed to dwelling with his people. That's the way he set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and that's what he's after. And you would also find out when you read this book that his people are prone to wonder. And that means these questions come to our minds. How in the world can a relationship exist where God wants to dwell with a people that like to wander? How in the world is God going to have a people that he can dwell with when his people not only are prone to wonder, they oftentimes do it? In other words, how can God guarantee that he will have a people and he will dwell with them. How can he guarantee it? Well, what I want to show you from the text is this. 
He's willing to pay the cost. And that doesn't mean that it costs you nothing. Oh, it costs a lot for people like me and you. There's a lot of cost that goes into our relationship with God. Make no mistake about that. But the cost that God pays is immeasurably more. So this morning when I'm trying to show that to you from Leviticus 16, that there's a cost, that it costs you something, but it costs God immeasurably more. We're gonna make two stops in Leviticus 16. One is rhythm, and the second is gospel. So that's where we're headed this morning, is what I'm gonna try to show you, that it costs, it costs you, but it costs God immeasurably more. Let's start with rhythm. Don't forget the story of the whole Bible. As we go through these books of the Bible every week, please understand that you will not understand the Bible if you do not study the books of the Bible and connect those books of the Bible individually to the overarching story of Bible, of the scriptures. You'll miss it. You may understand the words and sentences and phrases, but if you don't connect all of that to the overarching story of scripture, you won't understand the book. So let's not forget the story. God created in Genesis 1 and 2, and guess what? He said it was good. He established people, Adam and Eve, and they were supposed to have more people. They were supposed to spread to the whole earth. They were supposed to fill the earth. In other words, they were to live for the life of the world. But then something happened. They rebelled. And what we have in Genesis 3 is a story of that rebellion in which we brought about death, we brought about disease, we brought about destruction, we brought about the ravaging of the created order. And we've seen that that continues after Genesis 3 in every chapter and every book. But you know what? God is committed to his plan. And after Genesis 3, he preserved a people in Noah and his family. And after that, he promised Abram that Abram would have a son, that that son would lead to a nation, that that nation would have a land, and that they would affect through, God would affect through them the whole earth. Sound like Genesis 1 and 2? That's how committed God is to it. That's how committed God is to the way he set up the world. And let's not forget that those people that came from Abraham, read about them in Genesis, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and they ended up with 12 tribes and ended up in Egypt. Do you remember this? We looked at it the last couple weeks. And they ended up in Egypt in which God had to bring them out of bondage and to himself. Remember that? So don't forget the whole story of scripture because even those in the Old Testament, guess what? They were brought out of bondage to God and God was then bringing them to the promised land. Same story, same thing for us. So don't forget the big story. And also, here's the key to understanding more specifically the book of Leviticus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Leviticus chapter one and verse one. And hold your hand there and flip over to the next book. That is Numbers chapter one and verse one. Here's the key to understanding Leviticus. Leviticus starts out with God saying this. God speaks to Moses from the tent of meeting. Moses is outside the, ta the tabernacle. He's outside the Holy of Holies. He's outside the tent of meeting in Leviticus 1.1. And then you look at Numbers 1.1. 1 
And guess what you find? God speaks to Moses in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. You see, something profound has happened between the beginning of Leviticus and the beginning of Numbers. Because on one, God spoke to Moses who's out there, and then on the other, God speaks to Moses who's in here. You see, the tent of meeting was known as the tabernacle. And after God gave his people the Ten Commandments, you can read about this starting around Exodus 22 and following, God lays out the plans for the tabernacle. And Leviticus is all about what's supposed to take place in the tabernacle. Meaning, we learn about the priesthood in the book of Leviticus. That there were certain men who were set apart to serve God by teaching the people what God says, what God thinks, what God wants. And there were ceremonies that were associated with that and sacrifices that were associated with that so that the entirety of God's people's lives would be centered on him. But don't forget, God desires to have a people and dwell with them, but his people are prone to wonder. So you see, they had all these ceremonies and they have these sacrifices so that God could continue to bring them back to himself and center and recenter our lives on him. The Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system were supposed to work together so that God's people understood what it meant to live into how they were designed, the Ten Commandments, and when they broke the commandments or broke themselves against the commandments, they knew how to make amends for what they did. God's people in the Old Testament never thought to themselves, well, man, if I just obeyed more, I could get more of God's grace. No, it was God's grace that led them to the commandments. And it was God's grace that led them to the sacrifices. And it was God's grace that led them back to the commandments. So that the entire rhythm of God's people's lives in the Old Testament was repenting and believing and obeying. Does that sound familiar? So, written into the fabric of their relationship with God was his grace at work in them to show them how they were designed and how they're supposed to live and what happens when they don't so that their whole life was centered around God's grace. And again, repenting and believing and obeying. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the connection? That's the rhythm that's the rhythm. That's the way God wants us to live our lives. Even today, he still wants us to live, repenting, believing, and obeying. Well, that brings us to the gospel. You see, the Leviticus gives us all kinds of ceremonies and all kinds of sacrifices, but there's one central sacrifice. There's one central ceremony. We read about it in chapter 16. It's called the Day of Atonement, or you might hear it as it literally is, and it might even be on your calendars on your phone, Yom Kippur. That's what this is. Leviticus 16 is describing that day. It's describing the Day of Atonement. And let me tell you what happened on the Day of Atonement. If you go back and read Leviticus 16, you might get lost in the weeds like I did. I'm still learning this chapter but I can express to you, I've come this far. I still have questions about this chapter, okay? So I'm not gonna give you a perfect rendition of this chapter because I'm still working through things. 
But when you read this chapter, you see that verses 1 through 10 or 11 are basically telling you this is what's supposed to happen on the day. And then 11 through 28 is telling you the same thing again. It's just repeating it with more detail. So I did everything I could to sort this out for you. But it's not perfect, all right? So here's what happens. Here are the events when you try to break this chapter down. Here's what the Day of Atonement looked like. See if you can live into this. So the priest was responsible to gather the animals needed for the sacrifices. So he had to do that prior to starting the day. Then after he got the animals ready, guess what he had to do? It appears that he had to take off the garments that he showed up to work with. He had to bathe and wash And then he had to put on simple garments, linen. Had to have on an undershirt, some type of coat, a sash, and a turban. He had to dress himself in simple attire to symbolize he's a common person. Not special, not better than anybody else. But he was coming to do a very important task and responsibility. So, After he got washed up and dressed for the day, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself and for his family. Because guess what? He's not less of a sinner than any of other God's people. By the way, guess who the uh, priest was and becomes in the New Testament? All believers and pastors, guys like me. I'm no different than you. I have the same sin struggles. No different than you. Priest had to offer sacrifices for himself and for his family to purify himself so then he could represent the people of God. Well, after he offered the sacrifice for himself, he took two goats and he cast lots for them because he had to figure out, okay, these two goats have responsibilities. One is gonna be a scapegoat, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and the other one is to be offered on behalf of the people. So he did something along the lines of like rolling die. And that determined whether or not the goat was gonna run free or be sacrificed. Then after he figured out which goat was gonna be responsible to do what, he came back out and he made incense and he he sweet incense. Did you notice that in what we read? He offered sweet incense and, and he entered into now the place that he is only allowed to go one time a year. And to punctuate that, read verses one and two of Leviticus 16. Because God is telling Aaron, he's telling the priest right away, look, you don't get to come into my presence anytime you want, in the way you want. You have to come into my presence in the way that I tell you to come into my presence. Remember, you might remember this phrase, lest he die. And if you want to read about that, you can read chapters 9 and 10 that talk about people that thought that they could do whatever they wanted in God's presence. Aaron's sons. Well, what Aaron does is he mashes up this sweet incense and he comes into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the tabernacle. And as he comes into the, tab- and he, as he comes into the Holy of Holies, he is putting this incense and it is filling the room and it smells sweet. In other words, this is symbolic of the following. 
Aaron is entering holy, holy, holy ground. And beloved, we have got to take this sidebar for a moment. I need you to understand the holiness of God. The holiness of God is not an absence of anything. The holiness of God is the pure, is the finest, clearest expression of all that is good, all that is pure, all that is light, all that is true, so that the holiness of God destroys sin. You've got to understand that. The holiness of God exposes it, overwhelms it, overpowers it, and destroys it. God is so good and so holy that if we were to ever come into his presence without something, we would be destroyed. Not because we contaminate him, but because he is so good that he can't help but change whatever comes within his presence because he's so powerful, because he's so holy, because he's so good. When God set up the world and it was good, oh, it was contagious. It was going to go everywhere. And beloved, your sin, my sin is so bad that the only remedy for it is God's holiness. Because that's the only thing that can destroy our sin. The only thing. Your behavior can't do it. Your hopes can't do it. Your wishes can't do it. Your motives can't do it. It's only God. It's only his holiness. It's only his goodness. It's only his glory. It's only his grace that can deal with your sin and mine. That's it. So when Aaron put up this incense, make no mistake, he had to shield himself in some way by God's design. You remember Moses? When he was in the presence of God, he had to wear a veil. You know why? Because some of that glory of God started glowing from him. Do you see what I'm saying? The holiness of God is contagious. It is so good and so powerful. It's our only hope. And the day will come, the day will come when we will have bodies in which we will be able to be in God's presence, his presence that is holy and good and beautiful. And we will reflect that like we were supposed to. But because of Genesis 3, big problem. And the problem is not with God, and it's not with his holiness, and it's not with goodness. The problem is most of the time we just don't realize how defiled we are. We, we just don't realize how broken and messed up we are because the way that we, me going through cancer is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you understand that? The struggles that you have in your marriage and the struggles you have at work and the struggles you have with your kids and the struggles you have deep down in, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And the only thing that's gonna fix that is the holiness of God. Now sign me up for running into his presence without dying. You get it? So after Aaron would go into the holy of holies with the incense and the smoke, he would offer the sacrifice of the bull and the goat and he would put the blood on the mercy seat 
and he would sprinkle it with his finger seven times on the east side. Did you catch all that? God's pretty precise about this. And then after he did all of that, he would reappear to the people and he would come out and the congregation would be there and he'd take the other goat and he would bend down and put his hands on the goat and he would transfer, it was a symbolic act of transferring the sins of all of the people. Notice how the text says over and over, all of their sins. The words that are used to describe around verse 13 and 14 are all the, all, all the words the Hebrew language has to express sin and brokenness. All of them. He puts them on the goat and then there's someone who's responsible to take that goat and run him out of town. And I want you to understand what that is symbolizing for you. If you were there as the congregation and you got to witness that goat running into the distance, guess what you were supposed to think? God is removing my sins as far as the east is from the west. That there are my sins running off into the distance to where I can't see them anymore. Isn't that beautiful? Now let me tell you a rabbinic tradition. There is a rabbinic tradition that says the person that took the goat out of town would actually take the goat, the scapegoat, to a designated spot. And I know this is graphic, but y'all watch TV, and the Bible's way more graphic than anything you've seen, I promise you. And he takes the goat to a designated spot, and this is what he does. He grabs a rock, and he ties that rock around the neck of the scapegoat. And then he takes the scapegoat to the edge of a cliff and he pushes the goat off the cliff. And the, and the rock is tied around the neck of the scapegoat because that was supposed to yank the goat off the edge of the cliff and basically maul and destroy the goat all the way down to the bottom. You know why? Because that sin's never coming back. Do you feel the weight of that? That's how... Holy God is in removing sin. This is what I'm doing. I'm gonna destroy this sin. It's never coming back. This, this sin is as good as a goat who's been thrown over a cliff with a rock tied around his neck. That's how forgiving God is. That may be weird for you to understand, but we gotta scrub out all of our American 21st century kind of mentality. God gets down and dirty with this stuff. He wants you to feel it and smell it and see it because he's that good. He's that holy. He's that gracious. So after the scapegoat is dealt with, then the priest is supposed to take off his garments, wash, and put his regular clothes back on. Perhaps offer another burnt offering to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you forgive Thank you that you remove my sin, the sins of my family, the sins of your people. And this was to be done once a year. What a day. You know? What a day. Well, let's go back to our idea. Everything costs. Remember that? Remember how we started? Everything costs? Well, let's work this out. These are some things I thought about this week. Perhaps they will help you. We can't build a life that doesn't cost anything. I just want you to know that. We're gonna start there. 
Let's start with basic things after that. Food costs, eggs, my goodness, they cost. Gas, house, yeah, cost, right? Yeah, well, let's keep going. All your relationships cost you something, all of them. There's not a single relationship that you have that doesn't cost you something. Not forgiving in your life costs you something. Forgiving in your life costs you something. Saying yes to things and saying no to things costs you something. National debt costs not only us something, but generations to come, right? Freedom isn't free. Heard that before? There are people who have given their lives so that people like us can have freedom. Everything costs something. If you want to be a really good athlete, if you want to be a good doctor, a good surgeon, a good teacher, a good musician, a good photographer, a good parent, a good engineer, a good social worker, it costs you something. You got to go to school. You got to learn. You got to put in your time. It costs you something because for you to give your life to be a good musician and to learn how to play an instrument means that you have to say no to other things and you have to dedicate yourself to learning that craft. It costs you something. Even if you've been given incredible natural ability, you cannot be who you were created to be without it costing you something. It means that if you want to be a stay-at-home parent, it's going to cost you something. If you want a double-income home, it's going to cost you something. If you are an impatient person, it costs you something. If you want to be famous or follow the lives of those that are famous, oh, it costs them something. Some costs are delayed. How you treat your body in your teens and 20s, You'll find out about that in your 50s. Some costs are delayed. Beloved, everything costs us something. You want to grow and be a mature person, be a wise person? It's going to cost you something. You see, the reason why everything costs something is because we rebelled against God. The reason why cost is written into the fabric of our lives is because we rebelled against God. And the costs of our rebellion are cosmic. You know, now all of us are facing the unnatural rending of body and soul in death. That's a cost of our rebellion against God. That has to be fixed. There's a cost that comes to defeat death. There's a cost of righting all wrongs. There's the cost of healing a broken conscience. There's a cost that is incurred from resurrecting a dead spiritual life to life with God. There's a cost. And the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could actually never take away sin. But they pointed to the one who can and who did. You know what his name is? Jesus. And the best way I know to illustrate this for you 
the cost of a father and a son working together to bring about redemption in the power of the Spirit is this. You know, my dad had a heart transplant in 2006. In the spring of that year, there were horrific fires in Florida. My dad was about to die. You know, when you have transplants of that magnitude, they basically you go on a waiting list and he had had a bunch of other surgeries and procedures. I'm not gonna get lost in the weeds. He about died. There was a young man in Florida who was 17 years old who was burned in the fire, horribly burned, and he was on life support. And his heart matched my dad's. But you know what? At 17, he couldn't make a decision on what to do with his body or to give up his life. But his parents did. And because his dad was willing to let his son go, my dad is alive. As were those who received his kidneys and lungs and other parts. You think it cost his dad something to give up his son? That is a shadow of what your heavenly holy father has done for you. That he didn't spare his own son so that people like me and you who are prone to wonder we brought back to God so that we would have life. It's not just that he made it possible. No, he gave us a new heart and resurrected us to live with him forever. And he did it all by grace. You see, you can't pay the cost, and neither can I, but Christ did. And he paid the cost, not so that your life costs nothing and your relationships cost you nothing, but Jesus paid the cost for you so that when you're figuring out your career, you can know that your career shouldn't cost you your family or your physical health. So that when you're trying to put your security and your financial well-being, what Christ has done means that your financial security doesn't mean that you spend all of your money on yourself and compromise your integrity all for your almighty dollar, but that you would give it means that life of comfort that you desire doesn't mean that you're unwilling to do hard things and actually grow in your life. So your desire for comfort, fine. But because of what Christ has done, you're willing if called upon to suffer. You're willing to grow and do hard things so that you can become a mature child of God. Because you're not afraid to do hard stuff because Christ wasn't afraid to do it for you. And friends, that's what brings us to the table.